welcome to the Techspective podcast. Uh, my guest uh, this week is uh, Chris Eng from Vericode. So, Chris, thank you for uh, joining me, and uh, please, you know, give us a little bit about yourself. Great. Hey, uh, nice to be here. Thanks, Tony. Um, so, yeah, my name is Chris Eng. I'm the Chief Research Officer at Vericode. Uh, I've been with Vericode now for uh, 14 years, which is a really long time to be with any company uh, these days, but uh, it's, it's been a fantastic run. Uh, prior to that, um, I came from the consulting side of the world. Uh, I spent a few years uh, doing basically uh, offensive uh, consulting with a company called At Stake out of Cambridge, Mass. And uh, we'd gotten acquired by Symantec in 2004. So basically did, did consulting for a while on, uh, on, on the offensive side before kind of joining Jiberico to, to focus on the defensive side. And then ancient history, uh, I spent a few years in the intelligence community. I worked for the NSA uh, for just a couple of years uh, right out of college, which was uh, amazingly interesting and uh, really can't be talked about very much. But I'm sure you can... Uh, uh, can make some guesses around that. Yes. It, it, well, and actually, I, I, I will start off by saying what's interesting to me is the number of people I know uh, in the cybersecurity industry who are, you know, former NSA or former, you know, military ops of some sort. Um, uh, and so... Yeah. But let's 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 talk about uh, you know the reason I have you on here is to uh, is to uh, discuss the uh, recent uh, state of software security report. So let's stay, yeah. and then uh, I might come back and, and we can talk a little bit more. Not not yeah sure. I mean, and you're right with the observation there. A um, lot of lot of well, lot of alums. Yeah. I'm well aware we can't discuss details of uh, you know NSA tactics and strategies, but but more just the concept uh, I'm interested in of uh, of that transition. So yeah, you bet. All right, so you guys, um, you know, it's the uh, state of software security. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, volume eleven. Volume eleven. Yeah, I mean, this is something that we've been doing now for for a very long time. I mean, typically we do it about every year we're not we're not very uh, strict about the publication schedule but we're trying to get a little bit better about that so it's more predictable but um you know basically this is uh, this is something that allows us to report on what we're seeing in the industry um, application security wise and we're in a unique position to do that and when we started the company um and first built out the service and uh launched in 2007 uh you know, the things that were around back then were primarily software scanning tools that you would have to buy equipment for and install on premise and keep up to date. And, you know, there was no you know way to centrally manage it or do sort of any analytics. And you know, you're just on your own with this tool. Right. And, um, you know, we were kind of the first ones to at least on the, the code scanning side to say, well, we should make this a service. We should make this something where you don't have to maintain it. You don't have to have the equipment. Um, we can build services around it to kind of help you understand, you know, how to fix things. You can get on the phone with the developer and, you know, walk you through findings. You can um, have somebody from Vericode uh, help build out a program with you. You can um, report uh, on all sorts of different levels and uh, uh, policy compliance for your CISO and, and, and different people that might need to, to, to weigh in. And so we've kind of built up over time different capabilities into this service-based platform that 
you know, way, way go, goes way beyond what you could do with a tool. And because we're situated like that, it puts us in this place where we, you know, we see all the results of all the scans that are coming through. Um, we can actually look at how are different customers doing against one another. We can see what flaw categories are coming up most often. We can see the types of behaviors that that are you know, correlated with one another. And so that's kind of the motivation um, that that led us to start doing this um, 10 years ago was just to sh kind of show, um, you know, the industry and the world, developers, security people, whoever, what's actually happening out there, where they stack up and things they can do to improve their posture. So that's that's kind of the the, the very quick history of the report. report. Uh, the first time we did it, it had maybe a couple thousand applications in it. This year it has 130,000 active applications that were scanned within a one-year window. So, uh, as far as I know, the largest quantitative study of software security data any, anywhere out there, right? A lot of survey-based stuff, but this one is coming from quantitative data from real-world uh, customer scans. And so, so it's, it's pretty special in that regard. One of the things that st stood out to me um, in, in reviewing this uh, about that 130,000 isn't the 130,000 in and of itself. It's the fact that that 130,000 is a greater than 50% increase over last year, over over the last report. Uh, the 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 growth is uh, oh. is astounding. Right. I mean, so so yeah. When you when you look at it and you say, well, you know, we started off with a couple thousand and now we're at 130,000 over a 10-year period. You know that that that's impressive enough. But when you say, well, yeah, last year we were at eighty-five thousand, and now we're at one hundred and thirty thousand. That's, you know, that 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 to me is is more significant. Yeah, you know, I'll say those those first few years, you know, the the growth curve was was nothing like that. You know, it was a, you know, two thousand seven, two thousand eight. You know, that kind of time frame was a, a very early time to be, um, to do be doing static analysis, uh, much less analysis in the cloud, which we didn't even have a word for at the time. Right? We called ourselves software as a service. Which is still a term, but the word cloud didn't even exist. I mean, that's that's how far we're going back here. But um, yeah, I mean, as as companies have started to de develop more and more software, I mean, that's that's kind of the natural growth uh, progression that you expect um, when you think about how every company is a software company now, right? Whether you're a traditional software company like an Adobe or a Microsoft or a Google, or you're you know these days like a healthcare company or you know. Uh, you know, my favorite example is like John Deere, the tractor company, is a software company, right? There's they're, they're, the, the tractors are running on it. So yeah, Domino's Pizza is a software company. Um, everyone's a software company, so it's not surprising to see this this huge uh, progression. Yeah, and and I and I feel like more and more. Uh, I mean, you know, Tesla is an extreme example, but I feel like more and more automotive uh, automotive manufacturers are really software developers. You know, and the the car is just the hardware platform they're building on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and and so much of the, um, I mean, a lot of the in-car stuff that's not necessarily connected to the, you know, to the mechanics of it are have been running on just you know Linux or Android for for the longest time, right? Uh, but but yeah, increasingly um, stuff is stuff is software, and like you said, Tesla, you know, the di the difference between the models, uh, at least certain aspects of it, like can you can you can you turn on these particular features or the top speeds or whatever, like that's just a little software switch that you may pay five thousand dollars extra for and it's just like a it's just a flag that gets set somewhere in some some config file somewhere. So it's uh, everyone everyone is developing software. Yeah. Well one of the things that I, that I so 
in the report, there's a there's a like a pull quote that says um, the goal of software security isn't to write applications perfectly the first time, but to remediate the flaws in a comprehensive and timely manner. And you know, so I think that's a, that's a great quote. And I and and I noticed that a lot of the report kind of focuses around the idea of this. Uh, uh, the you know, I, I don't know, half life is the term you use, but you know, the, yeah. the how long does it take you to close half? And and um, so let's talk about that some. Like, what's the significance of that? So yeah, I mean, the the idea that no application is going to be perfect um, from the beginning, or that even you're striving for, for for perfection necessarily is is definitely a theme, right? Um, historically, there's always been a focus on like, well, what what's wrong with it, right? Which which flaw categories to be fined, and how bad are applications and um, what are we seeing the most of? And to some extent, we still do that, right? There's some continuity that you want to kind of provide from one year to the next to kind of see what's changing. But, um, you know, probably a, a few years ago, um, we started to really focus in on fixed behavior. Um, the idea being it really doesn't matter how much you find um, so much as how much you're fixing, right? If uh, if you're finding a bunch of vulnerabilities in software and you don't do anything uh, about them, then essentially you've just turned ignorance into negligence, um, at least from the CISO's perspective. It's only once you actually start to address those and, and do something about them that you're improving your security posture um, and actually making things safer for your customers. Um, so we started to measure that um, a, a little bit more. And um, you mentioned the half-life. Um, so that's something that we started to report on uh, a couple of years ago. And, and the idea there is, all right, well, how quickly are you getting after these flaws? Once you find out about them, um, are you fixing them in a day? Are you fixing them in a year? Are you fixing them in like five years? Um, and, and, uh, and we have a very, um, we have one curve uh, that's, that's in a diagram in the report that just kind of distills all of the data the, uh, around around fixes into one line. And then, of course, we, we report on different aspects of that and, and break it down. But um, at the very, very simplest view, we look at how long does it take um, to fix 25%, 50%, and 75% of the flaws that that you know about, that you discover through scanning. And um, and the, that median half-life is about about six months. So half of the flaws that you know about are fixed uh, within that first six months, and then the other half are still open and still remaining to fix. And as you go further and further in time, you get kind of a long tail effect, you know, that kind of uh, the curve starts pretty sharp as you fix stuff kind of quickly in the at the beginning. Um, one in four flaws fixed within the first 32 days. So it starts out kind of um, steep. And then it flattens out over time uh, where if you go way out in time and look out uh, like a year and a half uh, out from from the from the find the initial find date, you still have 25% of flaws that are still open. Right. So if, if you think about that, like hopefully none of those is, you know, severe or easily exploitable because you've just left it wide open for a year and a half. Um, but that's the overall the overall picture. And it, it I don't know if that's faster or slower than than you might expect uh for us we weren't too surprised at the at the sort of the, the front end but the long tail um was was pretty surprising to me at least the first time we looked at it well as i said my my, my next kind of thought or question on that was was um you know when these 
the the flaws that people that, that companies address first, um, the you know the, the the ones they get to quickly, um, do they tend to be the critical ones or do they tend or do they tend to be the easy ones? Um, because that makes a big difference. If 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 you say I've got a hundred vulnerabilities, and you know ten of them are critical and fifty of them are trivial, and then you know forty of them are somewhere in the middle, and you know, right out of the gate, I go ahead and fix the 50 trivial ones. Right, um, right. So, so it looks good on paper. I could say I fixed half the half of the vulnerabilities, you know, in under a month, but I didn't fix the 10 that matter. Exactly right. You're manipulating the statistics um, to, to make yourself look good in that regard. Um, so we didn't really cover that um, so much in this report, although we did look at that in the previous one. And so the questions that you raised there, I mean, the, the theories around what would be most important to fix first uh, are, are what we thought, too. So we looked at a number of so we asked the question, right? OK, is it the most severe things that are being fixed the quickest? And um, technically, yes but not by as much as you would think, right? Not by not by a significant margin. Um, we looked at things like, like uh, criticality of the application, right? One of the things that you do when you set up a new application to scan in Veracode is you give it a, just a, gen, uh, like a one to five ranking of, of how critical it is to the business. And there are some guidelines to help you pick. And so we thought, all right, well, maybe regardless of the severity of the flaws, maybe um, the things that are in the highest business criticality applications, the ones that are going to result in, you know, uh, the most financial loss or PII loss or just, you know, more uh, that drive more revenue for the company. Maybe those are going to be fixed first. Uh, definitely not that that was not the case at all. In fact, um, even less correlation there than than in severity. The thing that turned out to have the highest correlation to fix rate uh, was recency. So. <laughs> So not how, how how severe it was or anything like that, but just uh, how fresh was it in my mind? So um, did I just see like I just did the scan and I got this this a, a new result set as a developer? I'm more likely to work on those regardless of severity or category, anything like that, than I am to work on the ones that um, that 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 we found a month ago or two months ago. Um, the, the the recency bias was the strongest correlation that we saw um, when, when we actually broke that down into factors, which was um, a little bit uh, discouraging uh, to me, but also like if you think about human nature, also not too surprising. It just I wouldn't have gone for I wouldn't have uh, that's not what I would have guessed first, you know. Well, OK, so and, and that is, that is interesting, but then that uh, sort of leads me to the concept or the idea of you know more of continuous testing automated testing as opposed to like I, I i'm not sure how the evolution has gone within veracode from the early days of a, you know software as a service to where we are now because you know up until a few years ago i don't feel like like the the, the idea of continuous testing and, and the fully automated testing and, and kind of the you know in a devops sort of perspective you know didn't exist 15 years ago um, not at all <laughs> but you know but i see it in a lot of different ways um you know with just regular vulnerability scanning i mean hell even if i go back to you know my my days in the air force you know we'd have like an annual base inspection and you know and i always thought it was really silly or the annual physical exam that we had to pass it was really silly because that was such just a point in time thing you know like we had to run a mile and a half in i think it was under 15 minutes or something like that that that's how you qualified right 
and, and the assumption was that if you did that, you were somehow physically fit and, and good, good for another year. But the reality was nobody was physically fit. And it's just that, you know, you can push yourself hard one time for 15 minutes and, and, right. and make it work. You'll pay for it the next day. You'll have pulled muscles and sore muscles. And a lot of people had like, uh, you know, uh, exercise induced, you know, bronchitis and, and, you know, and things like that, you know, so it, it, it was health, but you know, you'd pass and then, and everyone would check a box and go, okay, well, you know, Tony's healthy. Um, and it's like, well, no, he's not. <laughs> and, and the same thing with vulnerability scans, you know, it, back in the day, you know, early days of vulnerability management or whatever, you would do a, you know, an annual scan or a biannual or quarterly or whatever. And it's like, okay, well, that's better than doing nothing. Yeah. But it's the point in time. And, you know, so you look at your quarterly scan, but three months later, when you're getting ready to do the next one, it could be totally wrong. And so, you know, so pulling this back to, you know, application uh, flaws. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, being able to do scans at all is better than not doing them. But also you need to be doing them continuously in, in, in an automated way so that there isn't this like gap in time between, you know, where, where you don't really know what the state of the application is. And, right. and as long as you're doing that, it, it at least helps address some of this recency thing. Because if I keep giving you a report, <laughs> if I, you know, if I, if I give you that same report daily or weekly or whatever, then I'm putting it back in your mind. You know, if a week has gone by and you're, and, 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 and other priorities have come up and you've forgotten about it, well, now I've just given you another report to put it back on the, on the top of your list. Yeah, I think you, you, you nailed it exactly. It's, it's about uh, being in your face. It's about um, not letting you forget about, about something, right? It's, uh, it's essentially, it's forming habits around, um, around safe software development. And actually we did have data around, uh, around that as well. When we, when we looked previously at, um, but we looked at we looked at how applications build up security debt over time, right? Just like technical debt, things that you um, I'm going to go back and fix that later, and then you you either do that or you don't you, you don't do that, and you just let it accumulate, right? Same thing with security findings. Um, sometimes you inherit a lot of security debt. Um, uh, sometimes you just let it build up by doing these scans and then and then not fixing things. And and like you say, you come back a quarter later or a year later. And you've got this. You've got the same things that you found before, or you've got you've got ninety percent of what you found before. We used to see this in penetration tests all the time, right? That was um, uh, that was kind of par for the course. You'd you'd uh, find all these great things. You'd hand them the report. You'd assume they would. You know, these are pretty critical findings. You they're they're probably going to go fix them all. And you'd come back a year later, um, and and only half the stuff would would have been fixed. So um, I, I think the same thing the same thing applies. Here we did see that customers that scanned uh, more frequently. Um, so, for example, if we compared, and this there's some there's some charts on this in uh, the, the previous two volumes of the report where we started looking at frequency. Uh, there's um, so that's kind of that survival curve I, I, I talked to you about before, where we talk about the 25, 50, 75 percent mark. Um, we kind of overlaid a, a different line on this chart for different scan frequencies. So we kind of put different customers or different applications into buckets and said, oh, these are the ones that are scanning one to three times per year. These are the ones that are scanning, you know, four to six times per year, all the way up to um, these applications scan 300 plus times per year, which if you think about it is like pretty much daily uh, and probably automated. And the, the, the stark difference in 
the survival curve of how long it takes to fix flaws is just it's night and day. I mean, it's the one of the prettiest charts you'll ever see uh, as as far as uh, as as far as AppSec goes. And then we also saw that scan cadence played a big factor as well. So not just how many times you scan per year. So like not just like what if I did you know, I could do those 300 scans like, you know, uh, in a month, right? And then do nothing for the next 11 months. Like that's not what I want either, right? So when I look at scan cadence, is it uh, is it steady, right? Is it like evenly spaced or is it bursty? I see, see a flurry of activity and then like nothing and then a flurry of activity and then nothing. And um, and the ones with a steady cadence also had a, had a better chance of not building up security debt. So all those things that, that um, those behaviors that kind of are associated with DevOps these days um, actually do lead to better security outcomes, which is which is nice because you've got a whole a whole camp of people that believe that DevOps and security are kind of incompatible with with one another, um, and it, they're really not. I mean, it's if if you actually look at the data or you actually think about how modern security teams work, um, they're not inconsistent. They're not incompatible at all, and it's uh, and there's data to, to kind of back that up. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, once upon a time when I was on the uh, security engineer architect side of the fence, um, part of my role was to do a, um, you know, basically security assessment of of an application before it went to production. And, you know, this is, we're talking about 2004, five. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the issue uh, at the time was, was the, the issue that, that we have with security all the time, which is it was an afterthought. Like we weren't we weren't and we weren't invited to the table during, you know, requirements gathering or scoping out the project or any of those things. Basically, it landed on my desk as a finished product. And they said, hey, go ahead and you know analyze this and let us know if there's security problems. Well, at that point, you know, I, I uh, my only option is to be the bad guy. <laughs> because, yeah, because I, right no you cannot release this because it's got all these security flaws um and uh you know and, and that was obviously a problem so when i when when i saw you know devops and and, and DevSecOps or sec devops or whatever term we're going with these days um you know i was i was kind of excited about that because i i looked at it through the lens of of my own personal experience and i thought it would be great if the development cycle itself wasn't such a monolith wasn't such a like you can't change this you know and and, and you know there's this phase this phase this phase you know and the, you know you'd have the thing where uh you know there was a cutoff date you know you can't add any more requirements after this and then it would be you know everything after that would be added to like next year's iteration um and uh you know so i look at where we're at now where you can just keep iterating and it's like if you find a flaw, you can just fix it. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that's that's huge for security. Yeah, I mean, not only that, it, you know, in the, in the scenario that you laid out at the beginning, you're finding a bug uh, in some code that some developer probably wrote six months ago. Right. Or I mean, maybe right. that's even optimistic. Right. Maybe they wrote it a year ago if this is like a waterfall um, type project. But but in any case, it was a long time ago. And so now you find a thing. Now you've got to figure out who was, you know, who owned that code. Um, are they still with the company? Um, they've got to open it back up and let, kind of get back into the context of, of of like, OK, well, what did this function do? And like what you know, they've moved on to something else. Right. <laughs> and so 
it's this huge, you know, and the cost of context switching is huge, but they've just kind of got to, got to get back into, you know, where they were at that point in time, try to remember what, how the algorithm worked or what the feature did and, and then make the fix. It's just uh, completely, uh, it doesn't make any sense with given the way that the software is being developed today. You know, we find that certainly the earlier that you find something, um, you know, uh, the better. I mean, you, you hear all the talk about shift left in in software security and, and um, absolutely, if you can point out um, a security flaw to a developer in the IDE in real time as they're coding it, you know, underline it with red or something, um, which is, you know, one of the products we, we have, you know, does that. And if you can just have them fix it at that time while they're thinking about that line of code, that function, before they even check it in, um, that's that's a great opportunity to number one get it fixed before it before it makes its way into into shipping code, but number two reinforce um, to that developer at that time like well this is a mistake this is unsafe right if they keep seeing that pop up over and over again they're probably not going to keep making that same mistake um, in the future so it 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 serves an educational purpose as well as um, uh, you know uh, uh, not building up security debt for that shipping product. And so if you do that in the IDE or if you do that, you know, at the check-in point, you know, right alongside the, the QA test, you're also running security tests and then you block the, the merge um, into the branch uh, if, if you're not passing your security test, just like the way you would, um, you would block the merge if you, if you didn't pass all your unit tests, right? There's all these different choke points where you can catch these things early, not let them get into the main product. And of course, some stuff will get through, right? Nothing's going to be perfect, especially after you integrate a bunch of different people's code. But um, you know, you get as rid of as much as you can up front. Right. Um, yeah. But so, so first I was going to say, you know, I, I can even relate to that to an extent in my role now, because I can say that it's a lot easier to have a back and forth, um, editing, uh, you know, a, a blog post or a white paper or whatever, sort of in real time. You know, like the, the 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 more the closer you are to when I wrote it, the easier it is. But if you come back to me and you you give me a white paper I wrote a year ago, and say, hey, you know, we need to edit this. Well, now I've got to read the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You don't remember your your you know the, the storyline or like the, exactly how you were trying to tell the you know tell you know, paint the picture, right? Yeah, it's exactly the same thing. Recency um, is a big deal. Right, we'd be a lot more efficient at, at fixing anything if it's if it's fresh in our minds. So um, that was a it was a really it was really interesting finding to kind of pull all these things together and 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 especially make that case that um, you know with data again that that DevOps and security are are very compatible. Well, and so one of the other things I want to kind of tie that back to um, uh, the earlier the the quote about um, you know the goal is not to make perfect software, and I think. And, 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 you know, I'm, I'm not entrenched in the developer world, so I don't know how, how, you know, pervasive, uh, this is, but I feel like, you know, there are still companies or managers who, who set that bar, who are, you know, and, and, and I think that there, um, it kind of does a disservice. Like if you, if you establish, if you establish that you expect, uh, flawless code or whatever, um, right. It gets in the way of uh, people being willing to find and admit their <laughs> right, right culture where it's okay to have errors. Yeah, it, it does. I mean, security at, at its you know most 
pure form is is risk management and risk management is n never says uh it's not about risk elimination right it's about finding the balance um and and i think that's true with security as well most companies that we see set policies around their applications it's not this needs to be bug free it's that you know um we don't want to ship anything that is a high or critical severity um and if you you find medium severity issues you have a grace period of x number of days to fix that if you find lows you have a grace period of an even longer time or maybe you don't have to fix lows and you know everybody can set their own policy depending on you know uh you know what what kind of data that 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 application is is storing or how critical that the application is and you know but and there will be different benchmarks for different things but very rarely uh, would it say uh you have to get rid of it get rid of everything to fix policy and um and that's consistent with with um like if you if you think about functionality and qa testing quality control there's never an assumption that when you release software that it's going to be bug free functionally right that's why there's patches that come out all the time that's why every mobile app on my phone gets updated like like twice a week not right. for security issues but like, you know how many times do you read the release notes and it just says bug fixes um same thing like nobody expects software to go out perfectly um functional they accept that you're going to find things and you'll go back and fix them if you waited to be perfect you'd never release a product so same thing with security i i, I think it's um finding what's the level of risk exposure that is reasonable for that application or that uh that that type of data or whatever and and setting that bar and then having the mechanisms in place to be able to react when you do find something that's important um certainly you have to be able to to, to to do that if you find a you know sql injection you you should be able to patch it pretty quickly but um yeah finding the right balance between um uh you know your what level of risk you're you're comfortable with in a particular application uh, is this important right well and one of the other things that i think is is important and i and and that you know, Veracode has uh, tools to with is, you know, I think, you know, if you have a developer, you don't want them to continue to make the same mistakes. Like you don't want to, you don't want to, you know, have draconian rules that make it, you know, where it's, you know, uh, their, their, their job is at risk for making a mistake, but you do hope that they learn over time and don't, you know, every single time they submit something, you know, have like, you know, basic buffer overflows or something. Um, you know, so hopefully yeah. over the, the bar is raised for, well, what are the vulnerabilities that are, you know, the flaws that are, that are, that are in the code, um, you know, but at no point should the expectation be that there would be zero. Right, right. And, and like, like no developer is trying to write bad code, right? Like they, they're just not, they just haven't been necessarily trained to to understand what safe versus unsafe looks like like this is in very very few college curriculums and suddenly you're dumped into uh you know a team that's developing code commercially and uh and you're, you're given this pile of, of of security issues um to to deal with and you've never you've never really gotten any education on that so like once they learn you know what to look for and and what patterns to avoid it's just like um, when they learn how to, you know, they learn new algorithms and and or or certain coding patterns to avoid, right? That that 
that gets you know internalized um and and i think they do stop making those mistakes if again if it's if it's uh constantly being fed back to them uh, if you teach me something now and then you don't remind me about it again for a year, I'm probably not going to retain that, right? Regardless of what the information is, but um, if I'm dealing with it every day, I I, I am going to eventually remember it, right? Um, so I think the same thing happens with 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 developers. Right. No, that makes sense. Um, so I said at the at, at the outset that I wanted to kind of circle back to this uh, the the idea of of the NSA, and so here here's here's here's, here's my thought on it, and I wanted to get your 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 insight is, I've had this conversation uh, I think three or four other times on, on this podcast um, with people who've you know been in the NSA or like I said been in you know somehow some sort of military comms type role you know similar uh, to to that, and then you know came into um, you know cybersec. Yeah. And I, I the thing I find interesting about it is that my perception of the 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 nsa and 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 i will i will fully admit that it's you know my perception is based on you know sort of the 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 myth of the nsa and my my perception is that there's essentially nothing unhackable and and that you know so like when like even when like when you had the edward snowden revelations and they were like you know the nsa can do all these things and people were like oh my god they're doing those things and i was like i always assumed they were doing those things like <laughs> like i'm not shocked at all like of course they're doing those things um and so what what i find interesting about it though is to go from that from what from from what i perceive to be a role where you can see the world and see that you know there, 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 nothing, nothing is unhackable, and then to come into the security side and be like, well, let me show you how to, let me, let me show you how to protect that, because um, I would think that by the time you got done at the NSA, you would just kind of throw up your hands and be like, yeah, it's hopeless. I'm going to go <laughs> get a bottle of wine and some potato chips. Right, right. I mean, I think that the general um, thought there is is. Uh, for the most part accurate right security has always been kind of a cat and mouse game there's always you know you introduce some uh some new protection and then somebody finds a way around it and then you you take the next step and then somebody finds a way around it and uh you know at the beginning the the bar was pretty low right if you look at the state of of where software was um you know 20 25 years ago or 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 networks or really anything that you know as as the internet as the public internet was was pretty new you know, the bar was pretty low and so it's it's been raised significantly since that time and i think the general idea that given enough time and resources anything can be broken is 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 true i mean some of the attacks you know, these days against you know uh, uh you know they're, they're they're getting crazy right you're reading about attacks and um you know you know glitching hardware and like some of the rowhammer stuff you look at some of the black hat talks about information being leaked by bouncing a light uh bouncing a like a what is it like a laser off a light bulb and, and recovering sound wave i mean everything like there's always a, a something right um that you can take to the next step and and sometimes it's 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 a creative thing like that and sometimes it's just a matter of of resources and um you know i, th- I think any sort of uh well-resourced um, intelligence community or intelligence agency in 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 a, a country, right? Uh, um, a nation state or or um, that that level um, 
is going to be able to come up with something. And if you're, you know, if you're a person that's targeted uh, by by somebody with that kind of resources, you can probably much, you pretty much assume that, um, you know, they're they're going to get something right if they're really coming after you and, and they're they're dedicated to that. But that's where we really have to, you know, as security people, sometimes you get sucked into that that mindset a little bit too much, right? You know that things are hackable and you you get so paranoid and and you uh you know you, we've we've all encountered these people right that are like well they think that every consumer every person regardless of technical ability should be taking the same level of safeguards that like um like a high profile politician should be taking right and that's not that doesn't make sense right the threat model is completely different for for me you know, than it is for like a presidential candidate or even like a, a like a a high profile you know, movie star or something like that, right? As a celebrity, um, and so you kind of have to match your defenses up to your up to what your your threat model is, and and that's you know that that doesn't get. I feel like that nuance gets gets lost a lot. So there's a lot that's possible attack wise, but you know nobody's going to burn like a zero day Windows exploit on trying to hack me. Right. I mean, that would be a complete waste of an exploit, right. um, <laughs> you know, so it's hackable, but probably not going to be used on me, I think, is the is, is is the way that most people could think about it. Right. It's funny you mentioned presidential candidates because uh, Trump's Twitter was hacked again today. <laughs> I know I was I was reading that article um, just before I got on, on the call with you. And, and you know, I, I didn't actually realize, first of all, that the first time around, it was just like a password guess. And then the second time around, it was also a password guess. He, right. doesn't, even, he doesn't even have like multi-factor turned on. Right. Like well, um, I mean, all the points you just made about, you know, that, you know, consumers don't need to do what a president or a presidential candidate should do. It's like, OK, but can we at least get the president to do those things? <laughs> right. Like that's the person that should be using two factor. Right. Um, and 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 not and not choosing a password that was, I think, guessed on like the, the fifth or sixth guess. Uh, I didn't get all the way through the through the uh, through the article, but I saw what the what the password was, and you know it was predictable, and there were no, I don't think there were special characters or anything uh, like that, and and you know no no multi factor. It's crazy to think. Um, and if that, I was trying to, if I was if I, if I was trying to guess my way in, that would have been in my top ten guesses. Right. And so now you think about it from a targeting perspective, like how many intelligence agencies also were in there? Like they, they're not going to write an article about it. Right. But um, <laughs> but 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 how how compromised, you know, was that already? I mean, it's it's um, yeah, that's a that's a great example of misaligning the threat model um, with the security practices. So um, hopefully hopefully learnings for some people. <laughs> You were talking about sort of the you know the, the, you know bouncing a laser off a light bulb and stuff you know and 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 some of the capabilities it, it reminded me of uh, two funny stories from my Air Force days that were actually very close together. So they had given us these you know these computers and they were like you know I, I worked in a, a hardened bunker on you know classified materials and um, you know so they gave us these computers and it was it was just a 486 you know, IBM PC, uh, yeah. but it was shielded. You know, the whole thing was in this, you know, radiation shielded case. Um, and, uh, but, at the, you know, we're talking 1989, 
1990. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, so uh, most people, you know, that I worked with didn't really know computers that much. And, and, and I did. And so one of the things I did is I brought in uh, Lynx, the golf game. Cause I worked on, I worked on the, 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 um, the midnight shift, you know, so it was yeah. built empty. And so, you know, we, we'd play Lynx, you know, all night. And then one day, um, I come in and, and they say, Hey, you know, the, uh, my, my manager pulled me aside. He's like, I just got word the inspector general or whatever they're, they're coming around and they're, they're doing inspections of all these computers. It's like, you need to get that off of there. <laughs> and, and all I did was go in and like hide the files. You know, oh just, yeah, right. And, and and that was all it took. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure you couldn't get away with that now. I'm pretty sure that the 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 uh, the capabilities of the Air Force Inspector General have improved beyond my rudimentary skills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's hope so. Because you know, it's like oh, they'll, they'll do they'll do DIR, and and then they won't they won't see it. So you know, we're good. Um, yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, but the. Uh, you know, and then the other thing was just uh, they, they they took away our stereo because they said that um, it would be possible from the parking lot to uh, pick up the the sound waves and somehow reverse you know hear or somehow hear what was going on on the computer like through these sound waves and stuff. And I was like, okay, a that sounds really really far fetched, but b we're on a secure base in a hardened bunker behind a guarded gate if. If a, a Russian agent or somebody is outside of our building close enough to do that, you've got bigger problems. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Some other things have probably. Yeah. And, 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 and there's you know, certainly there's defense in depth, but like a lot of things have to fail before before that becomes that becomes your primary, uh, you know, threat. Right. Um, that that's that's funny. Yeah. That the physical the physical separation is, is probably going to is is going to stop the, the vast majority of things in that in that case but that's that's amusing all right well so you know as we as we wind down let's let's bring this back so uh you know do, do you have any uh you know any other thoughts any other important takeaways from the report uh that you want to share yeah it's funny we as we were kind of talking um you know through the course of the conversation we we, we kind of pulled in kind of stats and findings from from some of the previous reports that that i think um were some of the, the the big hits from those reports around you know the, the scan frequency and the scan cadence and uh, you know, the 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 frequent the uh, recency bias and all those things but but really the the big the the big takeaway that came out of this particular report was um, we're we're describing it as nature versus nurture and the idea uh, the idea is that if you're a developer that's working on an application, there are some things that you control and there are some things that you don't control. And uh, so for example, um, I don't control the age of the application. I don't control the size of the company, which is, which kind of is a proxy for the, the culture. Um, I don't control the code base size. I don't control the amount of security debt that I inherit when I start working on the project, right? Findings that have been there uh, that predate me. Um, so those are that's kind of like if we think about it as that is the nature of the application. But then on the other side, there's there's nurture, right? What can I do as a developer to uh, to improve the security posture, to improve remediation times? And we already talked about a couple of them, right? We talked about frequent scanning and we talked about steady scan cadence, which which we had um, looked at in previous reports. 
We also isolated a few of the other factors um, that developers can do, and, and and we isolated those those nature factors, and we said, okay, just taking uh, taking everything out of the equation, how much does this one particular factor contribute to either speeding up or slowing down that half life? Uh, and so, for an example, like uh, large legacy applications um, uh, had had a 57 day slower half life than than the median. Um, so that that that's one example of how you you can fall into um, you you can fall into this you're you're falling into this environment where you've already you've already got an uphill climb right um, but if I do frequent scanning um, and when I say by doing frequent scanning I mean that I'm like one standard deviation above the the average right so if I'm a frequent scanner I remediate 22 days faster if I'm a steady scanner I don't have burstiness I'm 15 days faster if I run my static scanning through the API as opposed to manually, right? If I, if I basically automate the whole process, um, I, I, I remediate 17 days faster. And these things are additive, right? So if I do all of these things, I get an even bigger bump. The, the most surprising one um, to me is when I, when I actually add more scanning techniques. So if I'm doing static analysis and then I add dynamic analysis to that, which um, you know, if you think about it, I'm actually going to end up with more findings that way because there are a lot of things that dynamic can find that static can't find and, 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 and vice versa. But if I scan with multiple techniques, I, uh, I add dynamic or I add software composition analysis, which actually gets me more findings. That's also correlated with a faster remediation time on static, um, which is, which is very unintuitive, uh, to me at, at first, um, but, but, but I think for some people, it's just like seeing, seeing that the, the results came in through multiple testing techniques gives them more confidence maybe in, in the findings, uh, makes them take it a little bit more seriously. Uh, but, but either way, we saw that there are these factors that under the developer's control that actually improved the, the behavior. So whether you uh, are, are dealing with an application that's sort of in a, in a, in a bad environment or a good environment, right? You you inherit these these uh, positive or negative nature factors. There are things that you can do as a developer to improve the overall security of the application and and actually make a difference. Um, and that was uh, that was really um, fascinating. I think to isolate these factors and and show the correlations. So I, I wanted to make sure that that got in there. No, oh, absolutely. Um, and and actually, it was on it was part of on my original notes, and then I got distracted because I had. Uh, you know, once once we, you know, once I had asked about kind of the the, the half life and the and the six months part, um, you know, the next logical question is, okay, what can I do to reduce that? Right. Yeah. And and there's all uh, before you know we've we've always said like you know frequent scanning or or scan cadence or like you know all these uh, different ways to prioritize. But um, the in the back of a lot of people's heads, I think, was well that may be fine for you or they may be fine if you're in a you know in a in a a modern you know devops um uh, team that that is thinking this way or that has this mindset or just operates in a certain way or you know with built an application using modern frameworks and languages from scratch like that that may be fine for those but i'm you know i'm dealing with something else entirely i'm working for a bank and i've got this application that's 15 years old and like you know, there's all this security debt. 
and this is really saying to them like, okay, yeah, that may be the case and that sucks that you, you may be in that situation. Maybe your half-life starts out really bad. Maybe your half-life starts out, you know, several hundred days out, but you can still take these other actions that would cut that time significantly. Um, and, uh, and certainly it's not going to be as good if, as if you started out in a, in a, in a good environment doing all these modern practices, but you can still make a big difference. You can still make notable improvements, um, and, and, and we kind of break it down in, into the various factors. So um, hopefully um, it gives the people in those situations uh, a little bit more optimism that they that can make a difference. Awesome. Um, well, I appreciate you taking the time. I think this is a very uh, a great conversation. I will um, include a link to the uh, State of Software Security Report uh, in you know, with, with the podcast. Um, so um, yeah, thanks for joining me. That's awesome. It's great being here. Thanks. All right. I appreciate you investing your time to listen to the podcast, but I also invite you to engage on social media. Uh, please go like our Facebook page and follow at Techspective on Twitter and Instagram. You can feel free to let me know what you like. Let me know what you don't like. Let me know if you love it. Let me know if it sucks and uh, let me know what products you'd like to see reviewed or what uh, questions that you'd like to see answered in future posts.